0: Um, Last week, uh, Diller very kindly started off uh, our series, Um, but I'm going to deal with this story in five chunks. The first one, uh, my title, uh, was Total Brats in the Family. And when we think about it, what was going on there was pretty awful. Today, total integrity in the workplace. Next week, total reliance on God. Total testing. To ensure repentance and total forgiveness. I have to say I I, uh, owe the title Total Forgiveness to R.T. Kendall. So just to acknowledge um, some sources there. Let's have a look at the next one, Keith. Uh, Should click on, go right right arrow. Ah, there we go. So in the family we saw all those things last week that uh, looked like an, uh, an episode of EastEnders favoritism, jealousy, hatred, conspiracy, murder, theft, greed, deception, rape, incest, hypocrisy and grief. Pretty terrible, isn't it? All in one chapter there. Um, A dysfunctional family, by any description. Uh, The family of Israel, the other name for Jacob. And yet, these are are God's chosen people. And we need to remember that, that, uh, that he doesn't choose perfect people like Swiss family Robinson or uh, or, you know, or people like that. He chooses real people. So let's have a look at the next slide. And uh, why is the story of Joseph in the, in the Bible? Well, it explains why Israel landed up in Egypt. It explains the origin of the 12 tribes, the 12 uh, sons of, of Jacob. It explains God's sovereignty in human history. That's a massive subject. You know, how how does... The, the evil of people and, and the providence of God. How do they go together? Well, it's the most wonderful story of how God redeemed the people of Israel out of the most terrible situation. And then, and then finally, uh, it's a parallel with Jesus. Um, uh, we had at our house group, we were thinking about how many different ways in which the story of Joseph paralleled the story of Jesus. And we, and we could have gone all night, on all night, I think, uh, finding the different parallels. How a slave becomes a saviour, which is exactly what happened to Jesus. So we're now going to move on to today's story, Total Integrity in the Workplace. We seem to have a different Joseph in this story. Uh, Before we had a favourite son, an arrogant, precocious, tale-telling teenager. Uh, And now we have a hard-working, loyal trustworthy, willing, humble, slave. What's happened? Well, I would suggest maybe he's now um, a broken brat. A broken brat. Uh, Why has the change happened? Well, the the change has happened through brokenness, through suffering and rejection. Joseph's been through all of that. And yet, you know, he's not blaming uh, people. He's actually accepting his situation and he has risen from it, with God's help, uh, to, uh, to be this loyal servant. And the point of the Joseph story is this, that God can redeem any situation. So there's hope for you all today. Whatever situation you're facing, God can redeem it. That's, that's our God. He is so powerful. Um, now notice in chapter 37, in this dysfunctional family, there is no mention of God at all in chapter 37. Just go back and check that. I always like you to make sure that I'm getting this right. God's not mentioned at all in chapter 37. It's a fabulous story, but no mention of God. Now here, at the beginning of chapter 39, it says, The Lord was with Joseph. So this is the key to how we have got we 're getting to where we 're getting. The Lord is with Joseph, and he prospered. but what about uh, jacob 's family? had God abandoned them um, and the answer is no, God had not abandoned them. God knows that actually very often suffering is necessary for redemption, so just thinking back in In Canaan, there's Jacob, a broken man. His favourite son has been eaten by a wild animal, or so he thinks. And his brothers, burdened with guilt. uh, And uh, little Benjamin, probably blissfully unaware of some of this. But uh, um, God knew that in order to redeem that family as well as Joseph, then suffering was necessary. And so in chapter 45... Joseph says three times, "God sent me here." It's amazing, isn't it? Who sent you here? Well, I'd have thought it would have been your rotten old brothers who sold you, uh, who sold you as a slave to the Ishmaelites, Uh, and maybe it should have been Potiphar's wife who who tricked you and and you know you're under imprisonment. He's not blaming them. At the end, he's able to say, "God sent me here." So, whatever situation you are in. Uh, although we have made choices on the way and things have happened to us beyond our response, uh, then actually we can think, God sent me here. Why am I here today? Because God has sent me here for this time. Just for this time such as this, as we read in Esther. And if you ask me which is the key verse in the Bible, it is Romans 8, 28. And my my favourite interpretation of that verse is, In all things... God works for good together with those who love him. In every situation, God can work to go, for good together with those who work, who, who love him. Um, and throughout this story, we find there is evidence that God uh, that Joseph loved God, and clearly that love, God loved Joseph. Here in verse two of this chapter, the Lord was with Joseph. And we are told Joseph worked diligently. The Lord was with him. He worked diligently. It's a partnership. And we thought about that word, partnership, before. Koinonia. It's, a, it's a, a word that means communion, fellowship, partnership. In order for this situation to be redeemed, Joseph has to work dil- diligently and God acts faithfully. And when those come together, God can redeem any situation. So today uh, we're thinking about the presence of God in the workplace. Here is Joseph in in his work as a slave. um, In in Potiphar's house, God is present with him. Now, I don't know whether you've heard this. uh, When people are leading worship in church, sometimes they say, come, let us come into the presence of God. Just stop and think about that statement for a minute. What are we suggesting? That when the worship leader says, come into the presence, that somehow God appears? Or that when when certain words or phrases are used, that God is there? Actually, God is everywhere, is he not? God is already there in the presence. It's only whether we are aware of him. So when we say, come into his presence, well, we're we're, we're rather saying, actually, I'm going to be more aware of his presence. I'm going to acknowledge his presence here. He's already here. And when Joseph landed up in Potiphar's house, God was already there. Potiphar and his wife didn't know God, I'm sure. They were, um, they were another religion altogether, Egyptians. But God was there, and Joseph recognized it. So I want to just uh, think for a few moments about the importance of the workplace. Consider how much time you spend in your week, or if if you are retired um, you can reflect back when you were paid to work or or look at your current work. How How much time do you spend at church or doing church activities? How much time do you spend at home and how much time do you spend at work, whether that be volunteering or doing whatever it might be? If you work out how much time you spend on those activities, I think when you're actually at work, you probably spend the majority of your time in the workplace. Yeah, I know certainly there are people who leave home at 6 o'clock in the morning to get a train uh, to London, and then they spend all the day in the office, and then they get a the train back and they don't get home till 7 o'clock at night. Um, uh, that's a huge proportion of your life. and um, We do spend the majority of our time in our workplace. And uh, as life changes, obviously, uh, those priorities change. Um, and that can cause quite a lot of problems. Now, uh, I don't know if you've heard of a guy called Mark Green. But Mark Green is a, is a Jewish uh, messianic believer who started up an organisation called the London Institute of Contemporary Christianity. And Mark Green's main topic that he teaches on is about how God finds your workplace to be important. Um, And here's a quotation uh, from uh, a document from the Church of England uh, in 1945. We are convinced that England will never be converted until the laity use the opportunities daily afforded by their various professions, crafts and occupations. Isn't that good? The Church of England at the end of the Second World War, we're saying actually, it's not how good your vicar is; it's whether the people who come to, the, who are part of the church, actually use uh, their opportunities in their daily life, in their workplace, to serve God, basically, the kingdom. And uh, you know, um, that is. Uh, here's a little quote: uh, What one worker says. I spend an hour a week teaching Sunday school, and they haul me up in front of the church to pray for me. The rest of the week i'm a full-time teacher, and the church has never prayed for me. That says it all, yeah it's true, isn't it? you know we uh, there was a man who um, who once worked for Kodak and uh, then he got a job for Tier Fund, uh, and he said that when I was uh, when I'm, now I'm working for Tier Fund, the church regularly prayed for me, but they never prayed for me when I was working for Kodak. you know? What's the difference? And it's actually all down to a kind of a man called Plato, a philosopher, who, whose philosophy was that basically there's a separation between the physical world and the spiritual world. Spiritual things are good. Physical things are bad. That is, that is not what the Bible teaches. It is not what the Bible teaches. It is, is the teaching of, of Plato, who, who was 300 years before Jesus. So, uh, we need to make sure that we realise that actually God is interested in everything that we do. Um, Here's another. Oh, many Christians operate with the belief that the pastor's work is more significant than theirs. The pastor and the missionary do holy work. I'm putting it on tongue-in-cheek. Church work is holy work. What is done outside is not holy, is not ministry. This has undermined the working person's sense of their own self-worth as well as their understanding of the value of the work that they do. And one more quote. A man standing on the train platform was asked one day, Who are you? He replied, I'm a Christian, thinly disguised as an accountant. (laughs) Isn't that good? Um, Joseph is chucked into a workplace... um, and here he is, uh, um, working for Potiphar. He doesn't have a chance to go and worship uh, pri- it, it, with, with, with his people, but it's his work which is actually on view here. Second thing is, Joseph brought a blessing into Potiphar's house. Everything that he did, the Lord gave him success in Everything. Joseph is a sanctifying presence in the house of Potiphar. Now, some Christians are so paranoid about being tainted by the world, they seem to think that we mustn't go into the world because we might be polluted by the things that we encounter in the world. But here is completely the opposite. Joseph is bringing blessing into the house of Potiphar, the Egyptian. Uh, Christians sanctify the world. It isn't the world that defiles Christians. And, uh, and so, you, you know, there, there will be people in some church situations who will be horrified that I run folk things in a pub because Christians shouldn't go into pubs, you know. Uh, we can divide up our life into holy and uh, actually secular, but, but God wants his people to be in the world and he wants us to bring blessing. Uh, there's a, a, a well-known uh, Old Testament theologian called Gerhard von Rad, who says this, Blessing is the unifying theme of Genesis. Worth reading. Read through the whole of the book of Genesis. How much blessing is there in that book? An awful lot. Okay, so the the next question is, who is watching you? In your workplace, who is watching you? Now, a few years ago... um, uh, most of us are very pleased now that this program has stopped but a few years ago a new program came on the television called Big Brother it has now been ended thank God But um, this is where people offered to go and live in a house which has got cameras everywhere and then as part of a TV entertainment reality TV apparently uh, they would show what the, it, what the housemates did the housemates Come to big brother. You know. oh, no, sorry. Um, so that was terrible, actually, wasn't it? That was a mixture of Geordie and Lancashire. But anyway, um, you know the thing. Uh, and, and these people, and then, of course, it got worse, and it got worse, and it worse, as people started to do more and more bizarre things in order to uh, get, get fame and attention and, and what have you. But I wonder if you remember the very first episode, who won it? It was a man called Cameron who was a Christian from Orkney. And, and this young man, actually, uh, uh, he was from a you know, very kind of Christian background in Orkney, and, and he, he volunteered to go on this show. And he shone out, actually. And, and he became, the, I think after that, they would have picked the worst people rather than the best. You know, like now we call wicked good. And for young people, apparently sick means good now. If it's, you know, it's, it, the whole words have been twisted around, but Cameron actually actually won it. But the question is, would you have won it if you were living your life with cameras on you every day and people were watching? Would you have won that competition? No. Okay. Now, here is some statistics. Did you know? Um, did um, hang on, let's go on? I think we'll come back to this a bit later. Uh, I'll I'll come back to it in in, in a minute. Actually, what's the next one, uh, Keith? Yes, the boss was watching Joseph. Sorry, I I added something into this PowerPoint. uh, um, The boss was watching Joseph. If you're a boss, you do watch your employees to make sure they're doing their job correctly. Okay. He saw that the Lord was with him. I wonder if your boss can say of you, Uh, I can see that the Lord is with you. And Joseph didn't go around preaching about it to God, because I don't think that's the kind of person he was, but Potiphar could see that everything that he did was done well, and he was a witness to his his boss. Notice, we're not told about Joseph's worship, we're only told about his work. Nowhere in this story does it say, Joseph got down and made an altar and worshipped God. We're only told that he worked, and that as he worked for his boss, his boss saw the Lord was with him. There's a lovely uh, little prayer in this book uh, by David Adam, Celtic prayers about work. Um, David Adam, again, very keen on the workplace. And, Lord, whatever we build, give us a glimpse of glory. Whatever we make, give us a sense of wonder. Wherever we travel, give us a sense of reverence. Whoever we meet, give us a sense of awe. Whatever we do, give us a sense of achievement. Whatever our situation, give us knowledge of you. Help us to see everything is in your care and that you allow us to share in your glory. And he's got a picture of a lady pulling a pint there. And just so whatever you do, do it for the, for the Lord. Um, there's no separation between your physical daily work and your worship and the spiritual. Joseph was a man of integrity, and so his boss left everything in his hands. Isn't that? He'd come to a position of trust. Okay, who else is watching him? Potiphar's wife is watching him. And what did Potiphar's wife notice? That he was well built and handsome. It's interesting that uh, a very similar phrase is used uh, in Genesis 29 of Joseph's mum, Rachel. She was lovely in form and beautiful. You know, um, we, we are uh, physical and spiritual beings, and we're meant to aim for this kind of spiritual beauty, but let's be honest, uh, you know, some people are particularly attractive in a physical sense. And that's what Potiphar's wife had noticed. Joseph's integrity was going to be tested. Going to be tested. Uh, he respected his master's trust. He recognised his own positional authority. And he also realised that sin is against God. So if he had given in, it wouldn't have been just against his master that he'd been sinning. It would have been a sin against God. So how do you deal with temptation? Huge subject again. First of all, you say no. That's simple, isn't it? You say, no. And Joseph said time after time, no, I will not go to bed with you. The second thing is, keep away from temptation. He refused to be with her. So wherever she was in the house, he tried to move somewhere else. So if you're tempted to do something wrong, don't put yourself in the place where you're going to be tempted. So if you know, if you happen to be particularly tempted by cream cakes don't always walk past the baker's shop and slow down as you go past if you you know, if you're tempted by alcohol don't go to the pub you know, um, if, if Whichever, wherever your temptation is, if you if you deliberately put yourself in that place, then you are trusting yourself to resist. So Joseph knew that as a as a young virile uh, male, he he was in a position of temptation, and he refused to be with her. He kept himself uh, apart. Adrian Plass tells a story about a man who was uh, going to London on the train every day, on the seven o'clock train, and um, Opposite him, every day on the train, sat this rather attractive lady and after these conversations every day he was beginning to feel some kind of attraction towards this lady. And so he went home and he spoke to his wife and he said, I'm just, darling, uh, just to let you know that you know this lady sits opposite to me on the train and I'm just finding her quite attractive. And she says, no problem, get on the 6.30. <laughs> so, you know, this is about how we are tempted. Um, the third thing, uh, who's watching? Boteva, the Boteva's wife. No one except God. What do you do when no one is watching? Now, I had some research that actually, if you put a camera on a room, and you have a man in there on his own, I think it works for women as well, and there is a tea cosy in the room, a high proportion of men will put the tea cosy on their head. <laughs> now, uh, j- j- just have a look, Keith, next picture. There we go. There is Bishop David uh, Mitchell um, with the tea cosy on his head. And in fact, Billy Connolly is known to have said, uh, never trust a man who, if left on his own in a room without a, with, a, with a tea cosy, doesn't put it on his head. So, um, that's a Billy Connolly. Said. But hey, but it's just tempting, isn't it, to put the tea covers, especially when they're nice and warm. Anyway, when no one's watching except God, how do we behave? Well, I think we can probably come away from that one in a minute, Keith. Thanks, yeah, well done. (laughs) Um, There are no witnesses. Joseph is in a compromising, vulnerable position, because on that particular day, it's just him and Potiphar's wife in the house. And this raises the whole kind of question that we need to always be aware of in terms of our safeguarding as a church. You know, one of the basic rules is don't put yourself in a position where it is just you and and a vulnerable person. Um, always make sure you're in a place where at least the door is open and, you know, there are people around um, very fundamental, very fundamental rule. Joseph had tried to do that, but on one occasion he goes to the house and it's just him um, and a wife who is jealous, vindictive, and she starts a slur campaign. She has the evidence, the cloak in her hand. Now, of course, this evidence can be interpreted differently as to how it got in her hand, but she has the evidence. Joseph is innocent and yet he's sent to prison. I mean, we thought Joseph was doing pretty well, wasn't he? he, was, he he'd recovered from the slave bit, um, and he got to a position of trust in Potiphar's house. It's, he is a slave, but he's obviously being well treated, and it's a good job to have. Um, and now it's all turned against him. Of course, his boss has to act against him. He puts into prison. Uh, why is he not executed? You'd think that if you'd had an affair with the wife of the prison, of, of the captain of the guard, it would be instant for you. Don't you not think? Bit of speculation. Maybe Potiphar's wife had a reputation. And that Potiphar actually knew that perhaps she'd only got part of the story. Just speculation, pure speculation. But here's the answer. The Lord was with Joseph. Why wasn't he executed? Because the Lord had a purpose for Joseph and he, he wanted him alive, he protected him and there he was. Even when he's thrown into prison, it says in verse 29, the Lord was with Joseph in prison. So even if you feel like you're in prison and you've been chucked in a deep dungeon and it's not because of your fault, it's what's, whatever, the Lord is with you today. Just know that. Um, and he has a purpose for you. And there's one more line on here. Um, well, the presence of God in darkness. I don't know what the prison was like. I bet it wasn't nice. I bet it wasn't as, as actually comfortable as as the prison cells in Dartmoor or wherever. It was being pretty horrible. But the psalmist says, David, even though I walk through the darkest valley, you Are with me. Amen. The Lord was with Joseph in prison. Joseph's integrity puts him back in a position of trust again. It isn't long before the prison warder realizes that Joseph is a man of integrity and he puts him back into that position. Isn't that incredible? So here's Joseph. You know, you'd think how many lives, I don't know how many lives he's got. But here, yet again, he is able to redeem the situation and God enables him to be put back into that position of trust again. And that's the next chapter, which is next week.